All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on dailyfaceoff.com. Welcome to episode 31 of the DFO Rundown. I'm Jason Greger, along with uh, Frank Saravalli. He's in Philly. I'm in Edmonton, Canada. And uh, we are in the woodjerseys.com studio. You'll see my nice uh, Boston Bruins wood jersey behind me. You can get one. It fits in anywhere. Uh, The other thing I like, it's I might have to zoom in on it one of these days, Frank, because the intricacies that they put into this, it's fantastic. Uh, You can get yours at woodjerseys.com. It's an officially licensed NHL product. And uh, they got new teams coming all the time. So uh, Seattle fans coming in next season, uh, they'll have one for you later on this summer. Woodjerseys.com. Frank, how you doing? How was your weekend? I'm good. Did anything happen on Sunday? (laughs) Wow. It was, uh, it's quite the day. Like you think about these NHL playoffs. So the 2018 Stanley Cup winner just lost four in a row. The Washington Capitals, they're out. The 2019 Stanley Cup winner, uh, they got swept. The uh, the 2019 Stanley Cup finalists, they're not even in the playoffs. Right? Like it, man. Playoffs are tough. Playoffs are ruthless. So just ask the Edmonton Orders. You yeah. uh, you know you're down three nothing. Uh, you're up three to one. Like that's the third time since uh, 2006. The Edmonton Orders, 2006. Game one, Stanley Cup final. They lead three, nothing. They lose the game. 2017, Anaheim Ducks. They're leading by three in the final five minutes. Give up that lead, lose in overtime. And then uh, same thing against the uh, Winnipeg Jets last night. Like it, uh, it can be ruthless at times, man. It is a gut punch to, uh, to fans and the players. And uh, we'll see if Edmonton has anything left 
to uh, to bounce back and, and try to become the L.A. Kings or the Philadelphia Flyers. That's the other thing, Frank. It's happened twice in the last mm-hmm. decade. You know, and it only happened twice in the previous hundred years. Yeah, you know, and I was actually covering that series in 2010 between the Flyers and Bruins. And the only thing that felt similar, and I'm not saying this to provide any glimmer of hope or to make a prediction, like don't at me when I say this, is that the games were so insanely close in those first three games, they could have gone either way that you never really felt like that team was out of it. And that team was the Flyers. And in this case, it's the Oilers. I mean, you have, think back to game one. It was essentially a one goal game with two empty netters game two goes to overtime scoreless and you know, it's an OT loss. And then you have this game, game three, where they're up by three goals with under nine minutes to play. I mean, the way they had dominated that first period, it was easily the most lopsided period of the series for either team. And so then now they're down three, nothing in this hole. And, man, it's going to be hard to climb out of. And I spent way more time, Jason, than any man rationally should thinking about the Edmonton Oilers and their fan base's psyche over the last week, just with the text messages that were pouring in, the tweets that were pouring in after games one and two when McDavid and Dreisaitl were held off the score sheet. And I was like, the the trauma there, the pure trauma that exists, I, I actually get it at this point. Watching game three it was like it was like a plane crash it wasn't just one thing everyone wants to point to the Archibald penalty and that of course was the turning point but there were like nine other things that took place in that game that had the end result being the crash and man that is it's tough to stomach Oh, it was, uh, my, my wife is not a, a huge hockey fan, but yeah. You know, so she'll watch in the playoffs. She likes that. She gets too emotionally involved in it. <laughs> so, but, so I'm watching the game because obviously it's my job. And, uh, so she's watching it with me and she normally doesn't watch and, you know, she's excited with my son. He's seven. So, you know, he, he likes watching the games and you know, it's four to one. They're good. And then it's four to two, four, three, four. When it goes four, four, my wife's like, I don't know how people watch these games all year long. Like I'm literally mad. I can't watch anymore. And she went upstairs and she wouldn't watch overtime. <laughs> and, and I'm just like, you know what? A fan base, like a diehard fan um, to feel that. And we've seen those. I don't know. Everybody always says a three goal leads the worst lead in hockey. Well, you can ask Maple Leaf fans against the Boston Bruins. You know, I went through the list of other teams. Like it's, there's something to it, man. And in playoffs, like it can, it rips your heart out for fans absolutely rips them out. And that's, it's the one thing that I, that I dislike being a, in media is that I don't have that passion, but at the same time, when you like, you know, Your when jaw you see still hits life, the floor though. Like you're just yeah. like, like, how did that possibly happen? I oh, was yeah. And you see your friends and, and you see how devastated they are by a loss, oh. right? You're just like, Oof, it's tough. So we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. And then on the other side though, you got the Nashville predators coming yep. back and, uh, you know, I'll say this, like that was a five, four game. It could have been a nine, eight game. The saves like Nick cousins got absolutely robbed twice mm-hmm. by Nijelkovic once in the final uh, minute of the game, uh, UC Saros obviously uh, set a franchise record for the predators with most saves in a playoff game, 50 saves back to back games. And suddenly the Preds Frank are in that series. Did not see that coming. I mean, not the way game one played out. And I know game two was closer with some empty netters, but man, like I just, I thought Carolina was in the driver's seat and I think it really shows you 
how big of a swing that atmosphere can have. And I'm not saying that the Preds went home and won two games because they had a significant number of fans in the stands. Look, everywhere is increasing, but I do think there's something to be said for the environment and also for Saros. I mean, look at the way he played in game two, uh, follows that up in games three and four. Like we talked about this before the playoffs started. If there was one team that could really – uh, make some noise in the first round as a four seed. It, it might've been the Preds because yep. of Saros. The last 24 games, 948 save percentage. I mean, that's, it's such a difference maker. You know, you look at, look at a team like the Washington Capitals, for instance, they were banged up. They lose four straight to fall out in the first round for, I think the third year in a row. And you look at once Craig Anderson was out of the net, they had an 893 save percentage. Like that's just not going to get it done. No, it's well, and you know, Nashville actually in the second half of the season had the most points of all those top four playoff teams in the central. So I, that's why I said of all the number four seeds, they were the ones I was given the, the best chance to. And, and obviously St. Louis is out, you know, Montreal's only played two games. So that series is tied. Uh, they're still in. And uh, then you look at the Islanders Pittsburgh and that's a little bit different because mm-hmm. they were only separated by six points. And, you know, that one goes back and forth, Frank, uh, what you've seen through four games uh, does it change your view at all? Do you think either team has an advantage Islanders pens? I don't think so. I mean, I, the, we talked about this on Friday, just the idea of the number of goals scored in that series. That's what's been so surprising. Um, they've worked up a healthy level of hate. I, I just see those teams as, as really a dead heat. And I, I think the one team that has, and it's not just the way that they manhandled the caps, but I mean, the Bruins are playing so well that I think they've shown themselves to be the clear favorite in the division. So I think whoever they're going up against in round two, they're going to be in a nice spot. And uh, Montreal Toronto will have game three tonight and then game four tomorrow. Um, You look at the NHL, do you expect them to wait until uh, all the series are done before they start the second round? Or are we going to have a little NBA potential crossover where if there's a game seven uh, to be played, the game one of another uh, division will go at the same time? I hope they don't. Um, They have, you know, they flirted with the idea before of starting early, but just in the case of, you know, for these teams sake, like, I mean, Colorado, like if Vegas and Colorado can, can get done, you've got Colorado sitting there after the sweep, Vegas is now in a, in a really nice spot in their series. Um, you know, get these teams playing again. Don't have a team sit around for eight or nine days after their sweep. Sometimes you can't help it because you're waiting for your opponent. Their series goes seven and that happens, but don't have these teams. It puts them at a disadvantage. It's like, you know, you go and you sweep your series and then you, you start, you know, start over again, nine days after playing again. And you're like, how, how are we supposed to come out? and and win like it they it puts them in a really tough spot moving forward so i'm hoping that they do start early and uh well nazem kadri got eight games over the weekend he'll obviously at this point he's going to miss the first six games of the next round if it goes six games uh between colorado and likely vegas at this point um he does have the appeal process he says he's going to appeal is there any more system that looks like a farce than the NHL appeal system. So let's, so number one, Gary Bettman's never, ever going to go against an NHL employee. So why they're even going to Gary Bettman first 
to me just seems like a stall tactic to delay it. So that takes a few extra days whenever they decide to look at it. Then you find an independent arbitrator. And we saw it with Tom Wilson. Tom Wilson got suspended 20 games. By the time the arbitrator ruled, he'd already sat out 16 of those games. So they ruled and reduced it to 14, which means he still sat out 16, but it saved him the money. He only, because in the regular season, there was the fine. And so he only got fined for 14 games instead of 16. Nazem Kadri, do you think there's any chance that he gets his appeal heard before this eight games are up? It'll be heard. I just don't know if a ruling will be in place. And by the way, well, same yeah, thing. Yeah. I mean, you, you asked, um, can I think of, yeah. I mean, I can think of a few political kangaroo courts, but yeah, I mean, to this scale. And the other funny part about the arbitrator process is that these arbitrators have been fired somewhat often. I'd have to go back and do some digging in terms of, uh, the original guys that are still in place. But the funny thing is when there's a ruling that either side doesn't like, then in the off season, they have a clause in the CBA where they can then terminate that arbitrator and bring in a new one for the next time. So um, that happens seemingly routinely. And the other part of it is like, it, it's just not quick enough. Like this should be, you know, if you're going to make an appeal, especially at a critical time of year, I think you're right. Why have the commissioner hear it, even though he, he has the ultimate say in discipline for the league? Why have the commissioner here when you could just go right to the neutral and partial arbitrator, have them and then put in the CBA ruling must be made within 24 hours of the hearing. They could have the hearing, get all their ducks in a row legally, the proceedings, have it on say Wednesday uh, and then say, a judgment is due in 24 hours, get it done. I yeah. mean, it, it shouldn't be that difficult, but I will say that in this case, uh, precedent seems to be on the side of player safety here in terms of Kadri having any luck getting this, this reduced. It just seems like, you know, I've mentioned this before, the next step in the process, when you get suspended for five games for something and you do something similar, the penalty is incremental and it has nothing to do with repeat offender. That only has yes. to do with the money involved. So it's an important reminder for everyone as they try and, you know, look at this process from 30,000 feet. Yeah. And if you look at Nazem Kadri to, to defend himself, I, I'm not sure I see a strong enough defense to have any significant, like, I don't know, maybe an arbitrator would give him seven games, but I, I don't see it cutting down because it's his third time in the playoffs and it's just, it builds up from it. Like he's got a past history. So uh, you know, I understand why he's appealing. Like there's, there's no harm in appealing it. I just, I think the whole appeal process of the NHL is, is Could be overhauled. flawed. Yeah. And it's, it doesn't really, uh, it's not going to help him uh, very much at all. Now we'll have Alan Walsh on uh, player agent. He's going to join us today. So very much looking forward to uh, Here's a guy who knows a thing or two about appeals um, in the actual court of law, because he worked there for many years uh, in LA before he became a, an NHL player agent. Although that was what he originally wanted to do. And we'll find out kind of how he got sidetracked and then how he kind of got back in it. And it has been at the uh, forefront of it for a long time. So uh, I look forward to that. Um, a, a few other things, Frank, that, that I want to get to is, so here we are, you look at teams and the emotion from the postseason. you talk about Washington and, you know, their goaltending. Now we thought having two young goalies at the start of the playoffs would be a concern. And, and obviously one got injured and, you know, Samsonov was out with Kuznetsov. What do you think the Capitals do in the off season? Are, are they going to make a significant change? And Ovechkin didn't want to talk about a contract extension. Do you think there is any chance he doesn't resign in Washington? No, 
No, I think the conversations between Alex Ovechkin, who's representing himself, by the way, and Brian McClellan and the Caps have been very positive, very cordial. Um, I, I don't, th- I don't get any sense at all that either side is entertaining any sort of change. I just think that there's expansion draft considerations to make, and it'll be really curious to see whether Ovi walks into McClellan's office this week and says, "Let's get it done." And at that point with the respect that McClellan has for Ovechkin and all that he's done for the franchise, putting it on the map, bringing a Stanley cup to DC, you know, they're going to do it and get it signed expansion draft be damned. And so if they have to lose a guy by that route, then that's what they're going to do to make sure Alex Ovechkin is happy. I do think it's going to be a contract with a little bit of term three, four years. Some people wonder if uh, he matches up with Backstrom in terms of term I think he has four years left for me. Uh, I see that AAV somewhere around $11 million. I think there was some talk pre pandemic that Ovechkin's ask was 12 and a half. Now, of course it depends on term, but I think 11 sounds about right. And I think that's what the caps are budgeting, but I do think to answer your question, there's going to be significant changes there. I'd be really surprised if Kuznetsov is back and, not just for the stupid penalty that he took in the elimination game, but also just with the way that he's handled himself this year, his, the up and down nature of his play. Uh, you know, you look back to his production, he goes from, you know, when the caps, win the Stanley cup, 1.05 points per game, 0. 0.95, 0. 0.81, 0. 0.7. And you're like, this has just been a steady drop off for a guy that has four years left time, 7.8 million. Now people say, can you still find a way to move that contract in this pandemic world? And I would say yes, given the talent that's there. And maybe he's one of those guys that getting a fresh start elsewhere wakes him up and he's got the skill and and skating ability to be able to really be an X factor as we saw in the year that he almost won the con Smythe. It's interesting. 11 mil for Ovechkin. Like I think obviously always the best uh, score of his generation. It's not even close. Arguably he's going to go down as the greatest goal scorer of all time, but he is is the greatest goal scorer of all time. Yeah. Is he still that um, moving forward on, on the term of his contract? And that's, you I know what? He, uh, he hasn't shown any real sign of slowing down. Yeah, fair, fair, right? Uh, I mean, look year- at the way that he got motor. At, look, a little bit of a slow start this year. A lot of players did with starting in January. But, I mean, he, he still ripped off some incredible months where you're like, this guy still has it. Oh, no, he can score goals. There's, there's no question about it. And, hey, on a weekend where Phil Mickelson becomes the first player at 50 to uh, to win a PGA championship, Tom Brady at 43 won the uh, the Super Bowl. So, hey, maybe uh, maybe age is just a number now more than ever with the advancements of uh, training and everything else. It'll be uh, it'll be fascinating to but see. If we, by the way, I wanted to add this. So, like, if you give him some term, he's chasing Gretzky. He's chasing the goal record. Like, yeah. You got a franchise, like I said, he he's he sold a lot of tickets there. Oh, he's yeah. going to continue to sell a lot of tickets there, and you're going to continue to reap that reward as he goes after that record. No, I, I think agree. There's a lot of value business wise in term. If he's making eleven mil, does it give you a good chance to win? I, I he's at nine seven now. Like we're not really talking about that big of a difference. Yeah, I think he's. I think you still have a chance. And look, he does the hardest thing in in the game to do, and that's score. Okay. Uh, let's get to uh, Alan Walsh. She is our uh, our big guest today, brought to you by Jock MKT, where you can stay in the game. Go to jockmkt.com. 
right? You got the promo code DFO50, which gets you $50 to play. Frank just uh, played it on the weekend. Any success, Frank, at uh, Jock MKT? No, and, and thank thank God for that DFO50 promo code. That got me 50 extra bones and a couple extra cracks at it, but it's difficult. You got to really mine some value in uh, in the players towards the bottom of the of the market. You guys that you think can break out, you got to buy low, sell Luke high. Luke Cunning, baby. Yeah, Luke I Cunning. Perfect example. A guy that you probably could have got for three bucks ends up right around $23, $24, somewhere around there. And that's a nice payday depending on how many number of shares you got. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's you know what? You got to know the players and uh, you got to know the stock market. You got to know when to sell, when to buy. So it's a combination of both uh, adds a, a little intrigue to it. So check it out. Use the promo code DFO50 to start out. You get 50 bucks to try. Our next guest grew up as a hockey obsessed Montrealer, but took an unusual path to becoming a prominent voice in the game as a player agent. He moved to Los Angeles, went to law school, and his first stop as an attorney was in the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office prosecuting murder cases as part of the hardcore gang division. Then he transitioned to the hockey world. Please welcome to the DFO Rundown, the co-managing director of Octagon Hockey, Alan Walsh, thanks a lot for joining us. Pleasure to be with you guys. All right, so let's start here. I want to get Alan Walsh into storytelling mode. So you decide that you want to become a hockey agent. How exactly did you break in? Well, I don't know if there's enough time to tell the whole story, but I'll give you the abridged uh, version. Uh, I had so much overtime built up in the DA's office that uh, in between murder cases, I would have uh, two or three weeks where I was told to not come back to the office uh, to eat up some of my overtime. So I would go back to Montreal uh, and spend two weeks hanging out with my father. And uh, I had been a DA for uh, five years. I prosecuted about 40 murder cases and I was looking to transition uh, into something else. I didn't know exactly what, but I started thinking about uh, becoming a hockey agent and representing players and through a series of really happenstance meetings that first my dad had suggested I talk to a journalist who put me in touch with a gentleman by the name of David Shadia, who uh, in the 1970s was one of the top agents in, in all sports. And I end up uh, walking into David's office. He agreed to see me for 20 minutes, uh, ostensibly to give me advice on how to build the hockey agency. And uh, after the 20 minutes, we kept talking. 20 minutes became three hours, became four hours. And at the end of the four hours, he said, you know, kid, uh, one of my biggest regrets was getting out of the sports agent business. I never should have done it. Um, I'd love to get back in. I've always thought about getting back in. Maybe you and I can do something together. And uh, in his office on that day, we shook hands on a 50-50 partnership and together built an agency from scratch with no players at all to where after five, six years, we were representing approximately 25, 30 players in the NHL. So that's it? You just stop prosecuting murder cases and you leave the DA's office cold turkey? I left the DA's office, didn't have a client, didn't have much money, uh, didn't really know what I was doing. I just had a, a very strong belief in myself. Uh, 
I wasn't married. I had no kids. I had almost no expenses. And I was, you know, the first two, three years that David and I were together, I was uh, getting in my car in Montreal and driving to Ottawa, to Belleville, to Oshawa, to Toronto, to Niagara Falls, to Erie, and back to Montreal, then getting on a plane, uh, going to L.A., um, then uh, getting on a plane and going to Saskatoon and driving uh, Saskatoon to Regina to Fort Capel. Uh, and within a couple of uh, months, uh, I was getting on planes and flying to Moscow and then flying to Czech Republic and Slovakia and uh, Sweden and Finland. And we, we just were, were go, 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 go. And uh, things, things broke our way. We had a couple of lucky breaks along the way. Well, you speak of those lucky breaks, but you kind of got to work to get your breaks. I, I'd read a, an article about you a few years ago where you got some advice from a judge. You said, uh, hey, kid, uh, you've only, you only got so many court cases. You're going to burn yourself out. Was Were you at that point? You know, you were working all the time. You mentioned all the overtime. Did you, know, did you just need to, to mentally and physically get out of it? Just, you know, did you feel that burnout or did you just transfer that exact same work ethic right into a player agent and just be like, well, this one maybe isn't as, as taxing on me. I'm not having nightmares about murder cases, just negotiation with GMs. You, you know, I, it, it's an amazing question and something that I pondered a lot myself uh, at the time. Uh, I, and I remember that conversation and with that judge, like it was uh, happening uh, today, right in front of me, um, he he did call me aside and say, uh, uh, "Hey, kid, uh, you know you got to slow down." Um, and and this judge was a former prosecutor, and he was uh, a very senior judge uh, in the LA Superior Court at the time. And he said, uh, "You know, at the clip you're going, you're gonna." you're going to burn out at 30. And I wouldn't say that I was burnt out. I would say that I had reached my fill on doing what I was doing and needed to do something else. When you're trying murder cases, you are really surrounded all day by, by murder, by death, by human tragedy, and I really bonded with the victims of almost every case I ever handled. And you feel their pain. I felt a, a very sacred um, uh, a duty going into a courtroom and thinking that this person has been killed and it's my job to seek some measure of justice for what happened. And that's a tremendous burden and responsibility for, for a kid in his 20s. I mean, I was 25, 26 years old with almost no help at all, going in and, and getting these cases five, six days before jury selection and picking juries and finding witnesses in the middle of the night with my homicide detectives. And uh, if you, and I've said this before, if you try a murder case the right way, you cut out a little piece of your soul and you leave it with that case. And I found that after 40 murder cases, 40 trials, um, you only have so many pieces of your soul to give away. You do get desensitized and dehumanized to uh, human tragedy. Um, I didn't like what I saw happening to me at the time. 
And I really felt that there wasn't anything more that I could accomplish where I was. And it was time, it was, I was the right age and it was the right time in my life to take on a new challenge. So when you make that, that transition and you talked about how you, you really you know, felt that you needed to speak up for the, for the victims, you came in and, you know, kind of the mid nineties in the NHL where, you know, lots was changing for the players and, you know, they were trying to get more of a voice. Now, obviously it's, it's not life or death. It's a, it's a completely different level of standing up for someone though, who maybe had, had been taken advantage of at times earlier. Was that an intrigue? Did that connect with you at all at that time? Yeah, what I, what I did is, is in making the decision to represent players, I, I did a lot of soul searching uh, about what kind of agent I wanted to be. I wanted to uh, create uh, or fashion a set of values that I live by um, that players who work with me know they can trust and expect a certain level of dedication and loyalty to them. Uh, and, and I was always trying to think a little bit out of the box. You know, when I started in 1995, there weren't as certainly not as many agents as there, as there are today, but the agents that were long established had a, uh, uh, what I would say a stranglehold on the marketplace. And it was not easy getting started when you didn't have any current clients in the National Hockey League. That was not an easy thing to do. So there were, at least in in the first couple of years, people who, who players and families who looked at me and said, well, he doesn't have a lot of experience, but he has an experienced partner um, who, who is involved uh, and who is mentoring him. And that's what David did every step of the way. Um, but they also, in some measure, believed in the fire that, that, that resided inside of me, that whatever came at us, we would be in it together, and, and, and their battles were my battles, and, uh, and, and really that's the, the, the soul-searching that I went through before I even started in the business, uh, and then, of course, I learned a lot once I actually got started. Mm-hmm. So 26 years later, that fire is obviously still there. But how do you walk the line in a hockey culture where you're programmed to not say anything? Whatever opinion you have, you keep it to yourself. You might tell your spouse. You might tell your close friend if you're a player. But you don't really say anything to anyone else otherwise how do you walk that line between supporting your players and their beliefs and, you know, taking on their battles as your battles, but also, um, you know, maintaining relationships and, and keeping everyone in the right spot. You, you know, you never look for a fight with anybody ever. Anytime you're doing that, you're wrong. You're in the wrong before you even start. Um, and, and, and really it's, it's all very situational. Um, there are times to say something, there are times to be quiet. Um, and before you, um, uh, even begin to fashion any kind of a strategy, you have to know that the bond 
that exists between you and your client is so strong that nobody or nothing can break that. And uh, I've been in situations in the past uh, that no one has ever heard about, no one will ever hear about, but I know and the client knows what happened behind the scenes to get a result that was favorable for the client. And I'm happy with those stories never seeing the light of day. Uh, but I've also, as, as you well know, have at times done things that have been somewhat public. Uh, and uh, when that has occurred, there's been a reason behind it. It's not some uh, uh, hockey agent uh, uh, for dummies 101 guy sitting behind a keyboard uh, you know, typing away at something and saying, hey, let's see what happens. There's uh, a, a strategy behind everything that I've done. And, uh, and I think uh, for the most part, uh, situations have worked out um, favorably for the client after something has occurred. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to ask you about the meme that surfaced last year in the playoffs with Marc-Andre Fleury. I think enough has been said about that, but I want to know how did Alan Walsh raise hell pre-social media? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, uh, it was a lot more difficult. Um, uh, you, you know, back before social media. So we're going to, you know, two thousands up until around 2008, 2009. Um, the, the beat writers, in each city and what appeared in the newspaper the next morning, there was a totally different cycle to the news cycle um, that existed back then because those stories stood alone and were the stories of the day for at least 24 hours until the next day's edition hit with the new story. So there were ways to to do things, but they're really the, the, I would say the advantage was always with the club in every situation because there were longstanding relationships with beat writers in the key cities. And if something got put out there, it was very difficult for a player or an agent to respond and certainly almost impossible to respond in real time and get their message out or counter messaging out uh, in, in, in any respect. Uh, but, but certainly social media was the big game changer and equalizer for the players in, in those situations. Alan, I, I think it's safe to say, uh, you know, you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't just a, a, a split second decision. You obviously would confer with your clients. Do you find, because you're, you're unique in the fact you've always not been afraid to stand up. Uh, you're obviously, you know, I'm assuming probably when you were working back in LA, you might've had some threats from actual gang people. So I'm sure you're not worried about media types or, or an NHL GM uh, <laughs> saying anything now, but do you find does certain personalities, like when you want to work with players, do you need players who, who aren't afraid to stand up or, you know, can you kind of balance that to two? Do you think that works for or against you sometimes just in, in your willingness to maybe color outside the lines where some people don't? It, it really, 
you, you know, I, I fashion um, my reaction and my strategy and my advice. Uh, it's tailored to the client and, and the client's personality. And in many times the, the client and his family together, um, you know, and part of that is if you're the kind of agent that doesn't really know your client and their families, it's very hard when a player gets into a little bit of a sticky situation to really rely. They don't know you, but when you are like part of the family, when you are a constant presence in their life, um, not, not as somebody to bang them on the shoulder and tell them what a great game they played, because I've never done that in my life, but I will never do that. But someone who is intricately involved in um, setting up a player's financial life, uh, very involved in their marketing strategy and, and negotiating and bringing endorsement deals to the table, um, having an in-house concierge service that is there for players when they need something, whether it's, I, I mean, they're on the road and they need something They're they're on the road and their, their wife or their girlfriend needs something, having the resources in our office to be able to take care of that. Um, you find that you become a trusted day-to-day -day advisor uh, and mentor uh, you know, you're representing 20 year olds who become 25 year olds who become 30 year olds. And you see how much more um, uh, uh, knowledgeable uh, they become. And part of my uh, goal is to constantly educate players. So based on whatever their interests are, I mean, I have. Uh, a young player, 22 years old in the NHL, who's taking an online business class. And we work together to pick the class, what the subject matter would be that would most interest him. And he would, you know, a couple of times uh, a week, uh, send me questions about the stock market, the bond market, it, um, you know, inflation, what's inflation. And we'd have a running dialogue on that. So whenever I'm going through the Wall Street Journal in the morning and I see an article you know, discussing inflation, I'll flip it to him and say, here, read this. And it's, you know, for me, it's the player is sitting there and I think he's thinking, wow, my agent is thinking about me and, and things that I'm interested in and sending this to me because he read it and thought, wow, this is something I would like to read. And whether it's players who have uh, a particular interest in, um, in, in different training. Um, I'll, I'll read something about the latest and greatest that comes across uh, my desk from an octagon basketball agent or an octagon football agent and send it to a player and say, hey, what do you think about this? Would you like to explore this? There's this going on all day with, um, with everyone that I represent. So you're a constant presence in their life. And when you get to that point where this trust has been bonded together over, over years, 
something is happening that is threatening the player's career, they will turn to you. And, 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 and you're there at that time to give them the best advice possible tailored to them and their goals. And uh, last one for me, Al. when you, you know, when you have to, to deal with the, the, your players and you mentioned you're not a big uh, pat on the back guy when it comes to negotiations for new contracts and some guys are coming off a career year uh, i'm assuming those ones are maybe a little bit easier where the the guys maybe all of a sudden you know what they, they haven't produced at the level they've wanted to the last years how do those conversations go do you do you know when to be the kind of the hard ass guy who has to kind of maybe give him a reality check to say, Hey man, like don't blame everyone else. This is, we got to look in the mirror or sometimes it's like, you know what? Hey, maybe there is external influences here that, that are having a bigger impact than we think. How, how do you balance that to, to know what, what's the right time or the right team or the right situation for a guy when it's pending free agency? I, I would say that the most important thing is to always be brutally honest with a player. And when you have no fear of being honest with a client, you know, there's a lot of power in that because the player and their families know, okay, this guy's got our back. This guy has been with us for a very long time, but he's not going to sugarcoat things. There are lots of conversations I've had with players where I've said, track is up. I, I don't know what's going to happen in the off season, but we're in trouble right now. And you need to know that. What I, what I find is that the, the worst thing for a player is to not be given the honest truth. As long as you are not afraid to be brutally honest with your player, good or bad, they, they will hear the message and they will, they will get it. You know, I, I, I never need to give a player, you, you know, uh, every, everybody they work with wants success. They want to be successful. They want to win Everyone, they care. You know, I don't, I don't, can't remember a player I've ever worked with who didn't care about winning or didn't go the extra mile to try to better themselves. They care about their careers. So every player uh, has a beginning, a middle, and an end to their careers. And, and once a player enters into the middle uh, era of their career, uh, they're doing everything they can to prolong uh, the point where they get to the end. Everybody I've ever worked with, they, they care so much about uh, winning their, their team, uh, their teammates. Uh, so I, I think your job is, is to be there with them along that road and to get them ready for the next step. Uh, and, and in many respects, I've worked with guys near the end of their careers to help them with that transition from the last year or two of their careers to, to life in, in retirement.
Awesome. Okay, uh, we'd like to uh, wrap up with uh, Rapid Fire brought to you by Manscaped. Go to manscaped.com where you can get 20% off and free shipping when you use the promo code DFO21. They're promoting the Lawnmower 4.0. As Frank likes to say, gentlemen, it's not just a gift for you, it's also a gift for your wife. So uh, keep everything nice and tidy and trim, manscaped.com. Okay, Al, the only rule in rapid fire, you got to answer all the questions. Okay, so we'll start with the easy one. What is your favorite meal to cook? Um, steak. Okay. Now, which of all the players you've represented do you think would make the best player agent and why? Max Pacioretty. Uh, he, he, he would be, he will be a great agent one day. Okay. Um, if you could be commissioner, what's one rule you would change or introduce to the NHL currently? First of all, I will never be NHL commissioner. <laughs> I can guarantee you of that. Uh, but I would uh, institute immediately a strict liability rule against any hits to the head. Ooh, okay. What was the best advice David Shadia gave you when you guys became partners? Uh, David, David Shadia, uh, from our, from our first meeting said to me, uh, it's, it's, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Now to the flurry gif, did you design it or did you have somebody design it for you? <laughs> no comments. <laughs> and if you look to the NHL, it's 32 teams now. Do you think more expansions better for the league, or is 32 a good number for the foreseeable future? I think 32 is a good number for the foreseeable future. I think the NHL has to focus on uh, propping up the franchises that may not be doing so well right now, and that should be their, their focus before looking to expand anywhere beyond 32. Awesome stuff, Al. We really appreciate Alan uh, taking the time to join us today in the DFO Rundown. Great to be with you guys. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Alan. You got it. Now, Alan Walsh, very interesting uh, gentleman, Frank. Uh, just uh, what going from all those murder cases, like I, I really liked how he described it, the fact that it's like a piece of your soul gets gone every time. Like I being surrounded by death all the time, I couldn't imagine that. So it uh, sounds like he made a right decision to uh, to deviate from that, but learned a lot. And you know what? He's, he's very unique in the agent world because I appreciate him because he's not afraid to speak his mind. And he's like, as long as my client, and that's my number one focus, as long as my client's happy, I don't care what other people think. Yeah. And it's, it's a really refreshing approach because, you know, there's lots of agents out there that do a really nice job with their clients. Um, but I don't get the sense that the connection is quite the same as the one that Alan Walsh has with his clients. And that's not to knock on anyone else. It's just, you can tell that there's sort of that bond that exists there, that the way he was describing it, it almost sounds like a marriage. And, and there's lots of guys that uh, enter the NHL, they sign with their agent, and they don't hear from them at all until it's time to do their next contract. And not to say that that's the wrong way to do business. That's the primary reason that you're with that agent is to help you with that next deal. But there's so many other things that happen in between life events, family events, injuries, you know, all those things that pop up and I just, it, it, it's different. And so to have that, on, to have Alan on, to point all that out, um, you know, we didn't even get a chance to ask him about, um, 
you know, what it's like going from regular season, Alan Walsh to playoff Alan Walsh. You've got all these players, you know, take front and center stage in the playoffs from Mark Andre Fleury, Max Pacioretty, as he mentioned, he's out hurt right now, but Jonathan Huberdo in Florida and, and David Perron in St. Louis. And so, you know, you really dive in and you can tell it's like, you're, you're You watch him tweet. He's like, he's got to be glued to the TV uh, during the playoffs at, at all moments uh, cheering on his guys. So uh, nice to have that refreshing outlook. And, and I, I always enjoy a unique path, um, you know, to the NHL and to, to the hockey world. It's different and it's uh, it's an amazing story. And uh, speaking of different paths, uh, we got some young guys coming in. Cole Caulfield, uh, you talked, I think you said, was it nighttime uh, coming in Florida with uh, Spencer Knight as uh, Florida's on the brink of elimination. But it's interesting that uh, Caulfield's coming in for Thomas Tatar, who is a penning free agent, Frank. Um, you're getting healthy scratch in the playoffs. Are, are we talking a Mike Hoffman deal for Thomas Tatar now, a one-year deal? What do you think? I, I mean, I, I was always thinking Thomas Tatar was going to be on a one-year deal, and this doesn't change that. I Actually, when I was doing the free agent frenzy rankings for the last time, I had to double-check that Thomas Tatar was only 30 because you, you watch him play and you feel like he might be a little bit older than that, 33, 34. Um, and so, yeah, I think he was always a guy that was trending towards that one-year deal. And I don't understand why Cole Caulfield was ever out of the lineup for a team that struggles to score. There's one thing that he does really well, and that's put the puck in the net. You need him in the mix, take out someone else if you need. And I kind of alluded to the idea of it in episode 30, Spencer Knight. Look, Chris Dreger didn't get it done. Sergei Bobrovsky hasn't gotten it done. You've got a first round pick with the pedigree in Spencer Knight. I know it's a rare spot to throw such a young goalie new to the NHL into the mix, but I think you always see a rallying cry from your players that, you know, want to play a little bit better, a little bit tighter when there's someone new in the mix. And I think you could see that with Spencer Knight for a team that, well, that has also been pretty close against uh, Tampa in this series. Yeah, they've been very close. And the thing about playoffs is for any rookie, uh, they realize quickly it's a completely different ball game than it was in the uh, the end of the season. And, you know, there's more physicality. You know, guys are crashing from a goaltender perspective. So it's something uh, interesting to watch. You know, we got some teams uh, that will be uh, eliminated. We've already got one out in uh, uh, two out, excuse me, in Washington and of course, uh, Colorado sweeps St. Louis. Uh, Edmonton's on the brink. Florida's on the brink. You know, we got a few other Minnesotas on the brink. So this will be an interesting week. Uh, you know, by the time we get to Friday, there'll definitely probably be a few more teams out of it, Frank. So have yourself a great week, and uh, we will talk to you on Friday. Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Saravali and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special coming your way this playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. And let me tell you, it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal. Every playoff game day, you're going to be faced with four questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle. And here's a sneak peek into some of those questions we'll be firing your way. First up, you got to pick the winning team. That sounds simple, right? But there's more. You got to decide if the total amount of goals in the game will be over or under a certain amount. And that's where the real strategy starts to kick in. Next up, you're picking who's going to find the back of the net first. And you're going to want to be careful because that's one that could be cooked early on in the game. And finally, you got to predict which period is going to be the highest scoring. Will it be a barn burner in the first, a shootout in the second or a nail biter in the third? 
that's up to you to decide. Now let's talk about prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? For the daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards to treat yourself to some fresh nation gear, and you might even win a jersey from your favorite team. And for the big dogs, those who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. Play now at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess.